Well, hello, everybody. Well, it is Wednesday. Today was much better for me than yesterday in some ways. In other ways, it was just the same. So, huh. Um, we're on chapter four of the story today. Uh, I It might be a chapter I have to split into. We'll see how uh, how smoothly it's going. If we're just in a groove, we might finish it out. It's a little long, so I'll just go ahead and I will keep an eye on the time as I'm reading and we'll try not to. Uh, make it too long for you today. I think we're going to go ahead and stick with the idea that keeping the podcast around 35 minutes is quite sufficient. So, um, we met a dashing hunter slash wanderer slash reader of Greek philosophers the other day, and he was very gallant, and it was all very happy and exciting. Um, we haven't really seen Emily's reaction, so hopefully we'll get more from Emily today. Uh, so far the book is very dad-centric, which is very interesting. Um, that's another thing coming from the Jane Austen world. I know you're like, Elizabeth, you said you had a long chapter and you're going to talk too much. Now it's definitely going to have to be too, shush, let me just finish this. Coming from the Jane Austen world, I'm really used to, the books are from the female perspective about the world and men are obviously a subject matter and they're there and they're very important um but we spend a lot more time talking about the dad and his reactions and being from his point of view although it's more of a third person narrative um third person omniscient almost but uh so it's very interesting because this is a lot more male than the Jane Austen novels which I know was a criticism of Jane Austen in her time that her books were all from a female perspective about female things um and so it is interesting seeing you know uh someone a contemporary of Jane Austen's early years who was writing a little more with a little more boys in it so anyway we're gonna go ahead and start on chapter four with another poem of course because we gotta have these odd little poems in here because why not in truth he was a strange and wayward right fond of each gentle and each dreadful scene in darkness and in storm he found delight nor less than when on an ocean wave serene the southern sun disfused his dazzling sheen, even sad vicissitude amused his soul, and if a sigh would sometimes intervene, and down his cheek a tear of pity roll, a sigh, a tear so sweet, he do not wish to control. The Minstrel St. Aubert awoke at an early hour, refreshed by sleep, and desirous to set forward. He invited the stranger to breakfast with him, and, talk, taking again of the, talking again of the road, Valancourt said that some months past he had travelled as far as Beaujeu, which was a town of some consequence on its way to Rosalind. He recommended it to St. Aubert to take that route, and the latter determined to do so. The road from this hamlet said Valancourt, and to Bougenou, part of the distance of a, a league and half hence. If you will give me lead, I will direct your muleteer so far. I must wander somewhere, and your company would make this a pleasanter ramble than any other I could take. 
St. Aubert thankfully accepted his offer, and they set out together, the young stranger on foot, for he refused the invitation of St. Aubert to take a seat in the little carriage. The road wound along the feet of the mountains through a pastoral valley, bright with verdure and varied groves of dwarf oak beech sycamore, under whose branches herds of cattle responded, reposed, more than responded, more, more reposing lying, because the word is repose, not respond, reposed. The mountain ash, too, and the weeping birch often threw their pendulant foliage over the sweeps above, steeps above, oh my god, guys, seriously, where the scant soil scarcely concealed their root, and where the light branches waved on every breeze that fluttered from the mountains. The travelers were frequently met at this early hour, for the sun had not risen upon the valley, by shepherds driving immense flocks from their folds to feed upon the hills, and St. Aubert had set out thus early, not only that he might enjoy the first appearance of the sunrise, but that he might first inhale the pure breath of the morning, which, above all things, is refreshing to the spirits of an invalid. In these regions it was particularly so, where an abundance of wild flowers and aromatic herbs breathed forth their essence unto the air. The dawn, which softened the scenery, with its peculiar grey tint now dispersed, and Emily watched the progress of the day, first trembling on the tops of the highest cliffs, and then touching them with splendid light, while their sides and veil below were wrapped in a dewy mist. Meanwhile, the sullen grey of the eastern clouds began to blush, then to redden, then a glow with the clouds began, to, then a glow with a thousand colours, till the golden light darted over all the air and touched the lower points of the mountain's brow and glanced in the long sloping beams up the valley and its stream. All nature seemed to have awakened from death into life, and the spirit of St. Aubert was rejuvenate, re renovated. Reno renovated. His heart was full. He wept, and his thoughts ascended to the great creator. Emily wished to trip along the turf, so green and bright with dew, and to taste the full delight of that liberty, which the izzard seemed to enjoy as he bounded along the brow of cliffs, and while Valancourt often stopped to speak with the travellers, and with social feeling to point out peculiar objects of his admiration. St. Aubert was pleased with him. "'Here is the real ingeniousness of and ardour of youth,' he said to himself. "'This young man has never been to Paris.' He was sorry when they came to the spot where the roads parted, and his heart took a more affectionate leave of him than is usual after so short an acquaintance. Valancourt talked long of the side of the carriage, and seemed more than once to be going, but still lingered, and appeared to search anxiously for topics of conversation to account for this delay. At length he took leave, and as he went St. Aubert observed him with an earnest and pensive eye at Emily, who bowed to him with a countenance full of timid sweetness, while the carriage drove on. St. Aubert, for whatever reason, soon after looked from the window and saw Valancourt standing upon the back of the road, resting on his pike with folded arms, and following the carriage with his eyes. He waved his hand, and Valancourt, seeming to awake from his reverie, returned the salute and started away. The aspect of the country now began to change, and the travellers soon found themselves amongst mountains covered from their base near, nearly to their summits with the forests of gloomy pine except where a rock of granite shot up from the vale, and lost its snowy top in the clouds. The rivulet, which hitherto accompanied them, now expanded into a river, and flowing deeply and silently along, reflected, as in a mirror, the blackness of the impending shades. 
Sometimes a cliff was seen, its bold head above the woods, and the vapors that floated midway down the mountains, and sometimes the face of a perpendicular marble rose from the water's edge, over which the large larch threw his gigantic arms, and here scathed with lightning, and there floating in virulent foliage. Whew. They continued to travel over rough and unfrequented road, seeing now and then at a distance the solitary shepherd, with his dog stalking along the valley, and hearing only the dashing of torrents, which the wood concealed from the eye, and the long sullen murmur of the breeze as it swept over the pines, or the notes of the eagle and the vulture, were now seen towering around the beetling cliff, beetling, like B-E-E-T, beetling that is just odd often as the carriage moved slowly over uneven ground st aubert alighted and amused himself with examining the curious plants that grew along the banks of the road which these regions abounded while emily wrapped in high enthusiasm wandered away amongst the shades listened to the deep silence of the lonely murmur of the woods neither village nor hamlet was seen for many leagues and the goat herds or the hunter's cabin perched in the cliffs of the rocks were the only human inhabitations that appeared the travellers again took their dinner in the open air, and on a pleasant spot in the valley, under the spreading shade of the cedars, they set forth towards Bougeau. I'm probably saying that so horribly wrong, I'm so sorry. The road began now to ascend and leave the piney forest behind and wound among rocky precipices. The evening twilight again fell over the scene, and the travellers were ignorant of just how far they might yet be from Bougeau. St. Aubert, however, conjectured that the distance could not be very great, and comforted himself with the prospect of travelling on a more frequented road after reaching that town, where he designed to pass the night. Mingled woods and rocks and healthy mountains were now obscure, seen obscurely through the dusk, but even soon these imperfect images faded into the darkness. Michael proceeded with caution, for he could scarcely distinguish the road. His mules, however, seemed to have more sagacity, and their steps were sure. On the turning angle of a mountain, a light appeared in the distance that illuminated the rocks and the horizon to a great extent. It was evidently a large fire, but whether it was accidental or otherwise, there were no means of knowing. St. Aubert thought it was probably kindled by some of the numerous banditti that infested the Pyrenees, and he watched, and he became watchful and anxious to know whether the road passed near this fire. He had arms with him, which on an emergency might afford some protection, though certainly a very unequal one against a band of robbers, who's desperate too, as they usually were in these haunted wild regions. While many reflections in his ro mind rose in his mind, he heard a voice shouting from the road behind and ordering the muleteer to stop. St. Aubert bade him to proceed as fast as possible, but either Michael, his mules, by either Michael or his mules were obstinate, for they did not quit the old pace. Horses' feet were now heard, and a man rode up in a carriage, still ordering the driver to stop, and St. Aubert, who could no longer doubt his purpose, was with difficulty able to prepare the pistol for his defense. When his hand was upon the door of the chase, the man staggered on his horse, and the report of a pistol followed a groan, and St. Aubert's horror may be imagined when the next instant he thought he heard the faint voice of Valancourt. Now, he now himself bade the muleteer to stop, and pronouncing the name of Valancourt, was answered in a voice that no longer suffered him to doubt. 
Santa Bear, who instantly alighted and went to his assistance, found him sitting on his horse, but breathing profusely and appearing to be in great pain, though he endeavored to soften the terror of Saint Aubert by assurances he was not materially hurt, and the wound only being in his arm. Saint Aubert, the muleteer, assisted him to dismount, and he sat on the bank of the road, where Saint Aubert tried to bind up his arm, but his hands trembled so excessively that he could not accomplish it. And Michael, being now gone in pursuit of the horse, which, on being disengaged from his rider, had galloped off, he called to Emily to his assistance. Receiving no answer, he went to the carriage and found her sunk on the seat in a fainting fit. Jesus Christ, Emily, get it together. Between the distress of this circumstance and leaving Valancourt bleeding, he scarcely knew what he did, but he endeavored, however, to raise her and called to Michael to fetch water from the rivulet that flowed by the road. But Michael was gone beyond the reach of his voice. Valancourt, who heard these calls and also the repeated name of Emily, instantly understood the subject of his distress. Almost forgetting his own condition, he hastened to her relief. She was reviving when he reached the carriage, and then, understanding that anxiety for him had indis occasioned her indisposition, he assured her in a voice that trembled, but not from anguish, that his wound was of no consequence. While he said this, Saint-Aubert turned round, and perceiving he was still bleeding, the subject of alarm of his alarm changed again, and he hastily formed some handkerchiefs into a bandage. Thus... This stopped the effusion of blood, but St. Aubert, dreading the consequence of the wound, inquired repeatedly how far they were to Beaujau, and when they learned that it was at two leagues distance, his distress, distress increased, since he not, knew not how Valancourt, in his present state, could bear the motion of the carriage, and perceived that he was already faint from loss of blood. <laughs> When he mentioned the subject of his anxiety, Valancourt entreated that he would not suffer himself to be thus alarmed on his account, for he had no doubt that he should suppose himself to be able to support the very well, and then talked of the accident as a slight one. When the muleteer now returned with Valancourt's horse, assisted him towards the chaise, and Emily was now revived, and they moved slowly towards Bougeau. Oh my god! Dude fucking just shot this guy. It was like, oh, oh no, there's somebody in the dark. Bang! Oh, sorry, bro. Yeah, no. Seriously? Yeah, I would make a speech right now about guns, but I will resist the urge. Anyway, oh my goodness. Gun control, though. Seriously, guys. Some people. St. <laughs> Aubert, when he had recovered from the terror occasioned to him by this accident, expressed surprise on seeing Valancourt, who explained his unexpected appearance by saying, You, sir, renewed my taste for society. When you had left the hamlet, it did, appear, did indeed appear a solitude. I determined, therefore, since my object was merely amusement, to change the scene. And I took this road because I knew it led through the more romantic tract of mountains than the spot I've left. Besides, added he, hesitating for an instant, I will own, and why should I not? I had some hope of overtaking you. And I have made you very unexpected return for the compliment, said St. Aubert, who lamented again the rashness which had produced the accident and explained the cause of his late alarm. But Valancourt seemed anxious only to remove the minds of his companions from every unpleasant feeling relative to himself, and for that purpose still struggled against a sense of pain and tried to converse with gaiety. Emily, meanwhile, was silent, except when Valancourt particularly addressed her, and there was at those times an 
tremulous tone in his voice that spoke much. They were now so near the fire, which had long flamed in the distance in the blackness of the night, that it gleamed upon the road, and they could distinguish finger, fingers, figures moving about in the blaze. How are we doing? We are halfway through. We're not quite halfway through. We're going to keep forging forward for a little bit more. The way was winding still nearer, and they perceived in the valley one of those numerous bands of gypsies, which at the period particularly haunted the wild Pyrenees and lived par partially, partially by plundering the traveler. Oh my god, the racism. Emily looked with some degree of terror on the savage, oh god, on the savage countenances of these people, shown by fire, which heightened the romantic effect of the scenery, as through a dusky red gleam upon the rocks and foliage of the trees, leaving heavy masses of shade and regions of obscurity which the eye feared to penetrate. They were preparing their supper. A large pot stood by the fire, of which several figures were busy. The blaze discovered a rude kind of tent, round which many children and dogs were playing, and the whole formed a picture highly grotesque. The travellers saw plainly their danger. Valancourt was silent, but laid his hand on one of St. Aubert's pistols, and St. Aubert drew forth another, another, and Michael was ordered to proceed as fast as possible. Because he discharged one, it would need to be reloaded during this time period. If they, you had to, you know, load the musket, you had to load it with firepowder, you had to load it with a firing wick. Thing. I'm sure there's a word for that, but I can't think of it at the moment. Anyway, it was a process. Guns were, guns were a process. Anyway. They passed the place, however, without being attacked, and the rovers being probably unprepared for the opportunity and too busy about their supper to feel much interest at the moment in, beside, in anything besides. After half a league and more passed in darkness, the travelers arrived in Bougeau and drove to the only inn the place afforded, which, though superior to any they had seen since they entered the mountains, was bad enough. The surgeon of the town was immediately sent for, if a surgeon he could be called, who prescribed for horses as well as for men, and shaved faces at least as dexterously as he set bones. Um, okay, we'll get through this a little bit and then I'll stop. Um, tch, 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 sorry. After examining Valancourt's arm and perceiving the bullet had passed through the flesh without touching the bone, he dressed it and left him in the solemn prescription of quiet, which his patient was not inclined to obey. The delight ease which now succeeded the pain, for ease may be allowed to assume a positive quality when controlled with the anguish, and his spirits thus reanimated, he wished to partake of the conversation of St. Aubert and Emily, who, released from so many apprehensions, were uncommonly cheerful. Late as it was, however, St. Aubert obliged to go out with the landlord to buy meat for supper, and Emily, who during this interval had been absent long as she could upon excuses of looking after their accommodation, which she found rather better than she had expected, was compelled to return and converse with Valancourt alone. They talked of the character of the scenes they had passed, and the natural course of history and poetry, and of St. Aubert, a subject on which Emily always spoke and listened with particular pleasure. We'll stop there for today. Ah, the barber doctor. Uh, that's one of the reasons I decided to end it early, because I just think that's a subject that we should talk more about. Um, it's a very interesting period of history. 
So um, in the 1100s, there was a papal decree that monks could not partake of any bloodletting. Um, they decided blood was unclean, so monks weren't allowed to do it. But monks also had to shave their heads. And so um, there were a lot of barbers in the world um, and people who would shave monks' heads for them. And monks did shave their own heads too. But, um, but in general, uh, they would have to hire out somebody because that could involve blood theoretically and the monks wanted to you know adhere to a papal decree that they weren't supposed to participate in any bloodletting um and then pretty much as soon as you were a monk or a monk as soon as you were a barber you owned a set of razors you owned um valuable equipment in that era um what else could you do with razors well you could um very easily do some bloodletting, you could pierce boils, you could do other minor medical treatments that involved your trade. And then it just kind of evolved from there that a barber was such a, a position that didn't always have employment. So they became sort of a jack of all trades. They would um, do minor medical fix-ups. They would also often be dentists and pull teeth. Uh, so they weren't actually medically trained, although I believe in Italy there was a certain um, certificate you had to get to be a, a barber surgeon. Um, but that's why the, she talks about the, the surgeon was called and he shaved faces as well as he set any wounds because he was a barber surgeon. I probably should have said all that before I started talking about barber surgeons just in case anyone wasn't following my train of thought. But Anyway, very interesting period of history where you would go to a sort of general, and it, but you think about these remote communities. I mean, what other choices did you have? Uh, there is some really good documentary on, I believe it was on Amazon Prime, um, but it was about life in medieval England and it talked about medicine um, and it was how people took care of themselves because it was hard. And even here in the late 1500s, this novel is supposed to be set in, it's still a very rural community. It's not like today where you could travel somewhere. You had to rely on knowledge that generally already existed within the community or um, somebody from outside of the community moving in and bringing new knowledge. But that didn't happen that often. People didn't move about that much. They traveled more than we give them credit for, but in general, you had to rely on knowledge that was already in your community, so you passed on what you knew down... Anyway, so you had barber surgeons, and that's who Valancourt was stitched up by. Um, he probably, you know, owned a set of forceps and pulled out that musket ball and then stitched him up, and probably very little else was done. Um, they... It's rather interesting concepts of cleaning wounds and things varied. And in the earlier part of the medieval era, um, they did want to work hard at cleaning things with, with alcohol. And they, they, were, they were better at medicine than we give a lot of medieval doctors credit for. Um, but then it kind of takes a downward slide and it starts to become a lot more religiously motivated talking about, you know, releasing of 
of demons and so there there was it was a mixed bag and sometimes sometimes it was hit and miss you know the things that they were doing ended up being good but it wasn't for the reasons why they did it and uh it's like all medicine all medicine has just been a learning curve for all of human society so we'll just give them the benefit of the doubt um but anyway so uh valancourt was stitched up saint Aubert shot him good grief um it's rather sweet i was really curious because i'm like oh my gosh she's leaving already that's bizarre because i here i was thinking he was the hero and we were already parting ways i was like gosh are we gonna meet him again you know and on you know when they finally reach their destination it was kind of fun to see that he just immediately galloped back after them um the racism of the gypsies wow I mean, there's a general prejudice, even into this day, um, against Roma people. Um, but that was that was pretty that was pretty bad. Uh, it was very unfitting with current literature, current beliefs, and artwork. Um, some of like Salvatore's paintings would have depicted, you know, scheming, devilish sort of looking people that would have been represented by gypsies. Um, it, it it was not out of place in its era era uh but it's definitely did not age well um yeah so we're just gonna hope that that doesn't have to keep coming up again and we'll move on with that it's very interesting we do come across gypsies in of course emma in jane austen um where Emma spends a lot of time thinking about how gypsies are this, you know, scary thing and what are they out there for and Emma spends time fantasizing although nothing ever happens of much consequence. Um so it, it's interesting. It's interesting that you know it I don't know if that's related, but we'll talk about that more when we get to Emma. Anyway, I'll stop for today. Um, thank you all for listening to my babbling. Uh, have a good day, everybody. And I'll probably be doing the podcast again on Friday. I don't know if I'll get um, one done on Thursday. So everybody have a good Thursday for me. And bye for now.